Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Captain, we have reached the point of we are at a trial. Now, we're not going to go through the whole trial, but there were certainly plenty of highlights. It's interesting to note that Kyler appeared at trial looking clean cut in a dark suit, almost appearing respectable. In earlier proceedings, he was wearing ratty clothing, long hair, and showing off tattoos and piercings. Well, this was a part of the defense's strategy. The prosecution painted Kyler as a vengeful, irrational, jealous young man who became lethally violent with women who rejected him, saying he killed both Jessica and Kara because he could not stand to see them moving on to other men. And he confessed to six people over the years, they said. The bodies of the women were found on private property owned by a family that Kyler was very familiar with. He had been in a band with one of the family members, and had visited their farm often. The prosecution presented Kara's case first. Rhonda was the first witness, talking about Kara and her concerns about Kyler, how he was abusive, and how Kara wrote a poem about being afraid of Kyler, which Rhonda had found in her room after she disappeared. Rhonda read it out loud. It said, I want to go back, but we have seen too much bad. Pressing charges on the one I love. Scared of the person I used to love. I'm through. She also discussed her daughter's protection order against Kyler. Other witnesses included friends of Kara's, who testified about her volatile relationship with Kyler 
his possessiveness, and the abuse that left visible bruising on Kara, and how they had counseled her to leave him. Well, in the five years or so that we've been doing the show, we see this so much, and we hear about so much abuse in relationships, especially men towards women, and this should go without saying, but real men do not abuse women, period. Then in Jessica's case, Jamie and other family members testified about Jessica's life, and friends testified who saw Jessica leaving that party that night with Kyler. Photos were shown in court of the burns on Kyler's face and body and his singed hair when he was found at the Edwards trailer in September of 2016. Again, scratches are also visible on his face. The prosecution pointed out that Kyler had scratches on his face when he was arrested for the car fire. And it should be noted that nobody at the party has ever stated that Kyler had scratches on his face the day of the party, meaning that the scratches came afterwards. Photos were also shown of the contents of a burn barrel that was found on the property of Jessup's uncle. The barrel was determined to contain aerosol cans. Outside the barrel on the ground, Tex found a black cloth, a buckle, and a black otter phone case. The uncle testified that Kyler, Jessup, and Crystal were at his house on the evening of September 9th. He says he went inside and then the three left. When he came out, there was a fire burning in one of the barrels, so he put it out. And also testified that his house was burned down in July of 2018, and he knows that his nephew, Jessup, was responsible for burning down his house. And listeners will remember that he was, in fact, arrested for arson of this property. Right. Kansas City Police Department Sergeant Terrence Carter, a retired Kansas City Police Department master detective and bomb and arson expert, testified about the burns on Kyler and how they likely came from a gasoline flash burn, such as setting a car ablaze. Melanie Fields... Kansas City Police Department crime scene unit supervisor testified that the girl's bones were scattered over a wide area. She also testified about the photos of Kyler's burns. A county deputy, Dustin Love, testified about arresting Kyler and noticing injuries on Kyler's face. And when he asked Kyler about these injuries, Kyler told him that he ran into a tree. That's well, too bad that tree didn't fall on him and crush his skull. Correct. But it's just a lie to cover up right. for the injuries, obviously. And here's a portion of this story that we really have to, we kind of continue along the way of filling it out. Um, but what is important to the trial and to whether or not Kyler is actually guilty surrounds a lot of this story of Jessup Crystal and Kyler being together on that night. Right. Okay. So here we're going to have a deputy that will testify about the vehicle stop when he stopped Jessup, Kyler and Crystal in that vehicle. The deputy says that he knew Kyler as they attended elementary school together. So he is obviously aware of who it is in the vehicle. And according to this deputy's testimony, he said that Kyler looked extremely nervous, knees shaking, pale in the face, 
and had obviously peed his pants. Ew. So the deputy's trying to point out exactly how nervous Kyler, a man that he knew, right. appeared to him. He's physically nervous to the point of pale in the face, knees shaking, and he says obviously peed his pants. Well, and, and if you get on to law enforcement, you're going to know all the kids that you grew up with that have become scumbags and are on the other side of the law. Crime scene tech Matthew Force testified about processing Jessica's Equinox and the red gas can found inside. One potential witness, this would be Alfred Eust, the grandfather, he could not testify at his grandson Kyler's trial as he passed away before the start of the trial. But he had been deposed in July of 2019, and the prosecution succeeded in having his deposition read at the trial. Alfred's son, Kenny, is Kyler's father. Alfred said that on May 4th, 2007, he had coffee, read the paper, did some lawn work, and then he and his wife, Doris, went to the nursing home to visit his sister-in-law, which is Kyler's aunt. This was at 1245. They stayed until 245, went home and napped, then watched the news, Wheel of Fortune, and a baseball game before going to bed. Kyler wasn't living there at that time, but came by often. Right. On the 4th, he stopped in in the morning, sometime between 11 and 1130, to get gas for his truck. Alfred and Kyler went to a gas station where he said that Kyler put 8 to 10 gallons of gas in. Then Kyler met them at the nursing home to visit with his aunt around 1245, stayed for about an hour, and then left at 145. Kyler seemed to be in a normal mood, said his grandfather. The implication was that Kyler's morning was unaccounted for until about 11-something a.m. Right. We know Kara disappeared after she left school at 919, but... This is a little more in favor of Kyler, right? Because we have a witness who's putting him, well, accounting for more of his time that day. More of his time and also his demeanor. Yeah. As for Jessica, on September 8th, 2016, Kyler was staying with Alfred. He said that they awoke at 6. Alfred dropped Kyler at work at 8. Kyler worked until 4, and Alfred picked him up then. He went bowling and didn't see Kyler again until September 9th, which was a Friday morning. Both got up around 6 for work, and Alfred drove Kyler to his job at Extreme Bumpers, but he picked Kyler up around 9 or 10 a.m. Kyler left work early that day, and a co-worker testified that Kyler had scratches on his face and looked as though he didn't want to be there. Again, Kyler's time between when he left the party with Jessica around 11.40 p.m. and 6 a.m. when Alfred saw him again is unaccounted for. Well, that's a very good testimony because like I said, nobody at the party sees him with scratches. Next morning he's at work and coworkers say, hey, look, he's acting strange. He doesn't want to be there and he has cuts and scrapes on his face. Well, this leads us, Captain, to Crystal Taylor. This is Jessup's widow who testified for the prosecution about the incident where she was driving with Jessup and Kyler on the day Jessica's car was burned. Right. She said that when the officer pulled them over, Kyler started freaking out, saying 
and pardon my French because my French is just not very good. Quote, oh my God, someone might just as well fucking kill me now. She was asked about the timeline on the day Jessica went missing. Crystal said that Jessup was home on that night and everything was normal until the morning of the 9th. Kyler called their mother demanding to see Jessup. So Jessup and Crystal went to Kansas City to meet Kyler at his grandfather's home. When they picked him up, he seemed like he was in a hurry to get out of there. This is when they went to Jessup's uncle's house. Kyler told Crystal he and Jessica had broken up mutually, but were still in touch. While she was talking to him, he got a phone call from someone asking if he had seen Jessica because she was now missing, and he suggested that the caller file a missing persons report. Crystal was scared of Kyler at this point, she says, because she knew he was a suspect in Kara's case, and now she's learning on the spot this other girl, Jessica, is missing as well. Mm-hmm. Then Jessup and Kyler went somewhere on their own for maybe 45 minutes, she says. She does not know where they went or what they did. This is probably when they're burning her car. When they got back, she said that Jessup looked shocked, scared, and uneasy. The three of them went to a friend's house. At this house, Jessup went upstairs and got a gun and slipped it to Crystal, telling her to hold on to it. According to Crystal, Kyler did not see this take place. And Kyler asked her and Jessup to take the batteries out of their phones, out of their cell phones. And he had already thrown his out. So at this point, they left Kansas City to drive to Edwards, Missouri, where the plan was to leave Kyler hiding out in a trailer. And this is when they were pulled over for that erratic driving. And Kyler was freaking out. Well, and think about this, too. Jessup's not a good guy, right? He has some problems of his own. So whatever he saw or whatever he helped Kyler do, once they get into a situation where he can get some kind of weapon, he gets a weapon. Yep. Because he is now fearful for his safety and his girlfriend's safety or his wife's safety. It also kind of points out that wherever they disappeared to for that 45 minutes he heard something witnessed something or was told something or all of the three that scared the crap out of jessup and i look i'm gonna just say i'm guessing he saw something maybe he saw jessica's body because i don't think you'd be that physically shaken up just if somebody told you something because half the time you wouldn't believe them well, and then the other move here, Captain, is as soon as they drop Kyler off at this trailer where he's supposed to, you know, hide out for a while. Right. It's as soon as they get back home from dropping him off that they call police and reported Kyler for the murder. So as soon as they can get away from this guy who had called them for help, they're immediately reporting, hey, something terrible happened here. And we're pretty certain that this Kyler guy is all mixed up in it and he's responsible for something horrible. Well, and that doesn't mean that they felt bad for whatever Kyler did or felt bad for what whoever, whatever victim they possibly saw. But I think they called the cops because now he's a threat to them. 
And so if the cops get him off the street, then I don't have to constantly be worrying what he might do to stop me from telling anybody what I saw. Cell phone tracking evidence was presented by the prosecution in the form of a map, but they did not have specifics on Kyler's movements that day. Because remember, he took his battery out of his phone. One thing that the jury was specifically charged with deciding whether or not was Kyler in Cass County on September 8th between the hours of 11.45 p.m. and September 9th at 6 a.m. The prosecution expert also said that Jessup's phone was nowhere nearby at all during that time frame as well. Candace St. Clair testified about the episode where Kyler found her packing her bags to leave him. And he tells her she's not allowed to leave, choked her, and at some point even confesses that he had killed ex-girlfriends out of jealousy to her. She said he told her something bad had happened to Kara, and he dragged her body into the woods, and he told her he had gone around gathering up missing persons signs about Kara and then dumped them in her parents' yard. She said she didn't go to police because she was terrified of Kyler. Well, yeah, because this guy is a freaking psychopath. And on top of that, you should be able to smell him coming because he he reeks of pee. Nick Yeats, a former roommate, testified that Kyler once told him that he killed Kara because she would not love him and he didn't want anyone else to have her. Now, on the stand, he also made reference to Kyler raping an ex-girlfriend, but the defense cut him off and his comment was stricken from the record. This leads us to Caitlin Ferris. This is an interesting little portion of our story here, Captain. Caitlin dated Kyler in high school. Now, before she moved to North Carolina when she got married, she told the police twice in early 2011 that Kyler had confessed to her about killing Kara. She testified about wearing a wire at the request of the FBI and trying to get Kyler to confess on tape. Right. The feds had approached her and asked her to help them out because she was still in touch with Kyler at that time. The FBI actually paid for her to fly to Missouri and tried to entrap Kyler on recorded audio. They hoped that since he had already confessed to her previously, that he would do so again. So Caitlin was given a recording device hidden in a key fob and reached out to Kyler. Some of the recording was played for the jury. In it, Kyler tells her he is going to kill himself because every girl he has ever loved has left him. He cries and says he is always alone and that he has killed someone. Caitlin says he will feel better now that he has told her. Then Caitlin suggests that the two drive to a wooded area to play Ouija, like Ouija board. Yeah, they want to do like a summons or a seance. seance. And try to talk to Kara's spirit. Yeah, they played that audio and video at the trial because it's almost like she set up her cell phone like in between the two of them while they're driving and you could see him like turning his head and talking to her. And, and at one point he's like biting her lip and not letting her lip go. And it's, it's very strange. And then he's constantly, you know, she's going, well, what would you say to 
Kara, and he keeps mm. saying, well, Kara, please don't hate me. Yeah, at one point, Kyler can be heard saying, dear Kara, I'm really sorry, love Kyler. The jury also heard Kyler referring to their excursion as the death spot of the girlfriend I killed. Later, Kyler is heard saying on the audio tape that he had killed her and I dumped her in the woods. Kyler also talks about what he's going to do with his inheritance, mind you, from his grandfather, who was still alive at the time of the recording. Yeah, dirtbags. So given what this guy's suspected of, man, is that disturbing to hear him talking about not all these, not just all these things with Kara and her spirit and what he did with her, but, oh, what I'm going to do with my inheritance from my grandfather who's still alive. Through this whole thing, there are portions where Kyler is telling Caitlin that he loves her, that she's the only one for him, and so on. The state presented a recording of two jailhouse phone calls Kyler made to his mother. His mom says that she loves and supports him, but Kyler tells her that he dragged Jessica into the woods because of her and that she was never there for him. So this is just one of many confessions, this time to Jessica's murder. Yeah, it seems like he confessed to anybody that would listen to him. Anybody that's willing to spend more than five minutes with this guy, he's Mm. going to start telling you that he killed somebody. This time he's telling his mother as he's sitting in jail waiting to go to trial, hey, I, I... I dragged Jessica into the woods because of you, mom, because you were never there for me. Well, partly that's probably true. He probably has some early childhood trauma and he probably has some abandonment issues. And so if a girl leaves him, he doesn't know how to deal with that as an adult, as a, as a human. So therefore I have to take this individual's life so they can't leave me. Yeah, and the interesting thing here too, Captain, just looking at my notes, this must have been, this conversation between Kyler and his mother must have been after he was arrested for setting Jessica's vehicle on fire before her body was found because he blames whatever he did to Jessica on his mother, to which his mom responds, you know, she's pleading with him to, you know, you need to tell people where Jessica is. Right. And so he then hangs up on on his mother never revealing the location of jessica or exactly what he did we have megan runyon's uh this is jessica's little sister she testified that she was so devastated after the loss of her sister that she wanted to end her own life and it sounds like she almost did so instead at some point she decided to do what jessica would want her to do she says so she graduated with honors from school Amy Clark, the friend who reported Carr missing, testified that two weeks before Carr went missing, Carr showed up at her house distressed about Kyler. She was trying to leave him. Kyler called and called her phone, she says, maybe 20 times that day until Carr finally agreed to meet with him. Uh, She left for a bit and came back to Amy's with a swollen lip and choke marks on her throat. Of course, this controlling douchebag afterwards has to then just keep calling her and harassing her. Well, the prosecution is going to argue that, okay, we have these bones that we found, the remains of the two 
young women. Unfortunately, there were only about 50 bones of each were found. The prosecution's going to say that the remains were consistent with strangulation, and they've shown time and time again with all these witnesses that this was consistent with Kyler's treatment of other women, women who survived. On the flip side of all of that, Captain, the defense, Kyler's defense mounted a vigorous defense. They alleged that the police suffered from tunnel vision and focused on Kyler when others, such as Jessup, were equally viable suspects and were never investigated. Well, of course, that's what this giant pile of dog shit is going to do. He refuses to uh, accept responsibility for his actions, and so he throws everybody else under the bus. Hey, go look at these other guys that they were seeing. Oh, by the way, go look at my half-brother. He's a person of interest. Yeah, his defense tried to poke holes in the case, the evidence, and the methodologies used by the state. They said that there was zero physical evidence linking Kyler to the crimes. They portrayed Kyler as a lost little kid, a talented artist, a goofball, someone non-threatening and misunderstood. They also said that Kyler had alibis and could not have killed either Jessica or Kara. In quite a few instances, the defense witnesses testified only in front of the judge in an offer of proof. These witnesses were not heard by the jury because the judge refused to allow them to testify in open court. And then the defense tried to raise suspicions about Jessup's involvement. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right, we're back. 
Cheers, you, Captain. You silly willies. You willy sillies. We're back. So, I mean, think about this. His defense, you know, first of all, we know he calls Jessup, his half-brother, to come help him. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know exactly what Jessup helped him do. Nope. We, don't, we don't know if Jessup was involved in, in burning the car. We know he possibly was there. But there was something that startled Jessup, and that's what I believe it was a body, uh, the movement of a body or something like that. Something startled Jessup. That's why he told his wife, here's a, you know, that, that's why at the... Well, the defense pointed out that it took Jessup six hours after dropping Kyler off at the trailer to call police. So they wanted to present the obvious question of, well, what was Jessup doing during that time? And the defense pointed out that Jessup was the one who started the fire at Paul's house. You know, they wanted to imply that maybe he was destroying some kind of evidence. They also question why Crystal and Jessup got married in 2017, this after 15 years together. Was it so that she could not be forced to testify against Jessup? They emphasized that police didn't find anything of evidentiary value in the burn barrel at Paul's. What they did find was aerosol cans, and their expert argued that Kyler could have gotten the burns on his face and hands from burning those cans and having them explode. This is an alternative to him burning himself, setting Jessica's vehicle on fire. Right. The defense focused on the fact that no one had proven when or how Kara died. An attempt by them to introduce a witness who would testify to rumors that she had OD'd on meth, this was rejected by the judge. The defense also focused on a long brown hair found near Jessica's remains. Jessica's hair was blonde. Again, the implication was that someone else was at the crime scene. The defense tried to imply that Kyler could not have killed Jessica based on the timeline. Based on phone records, Kyler was home from 2 a.m. to 2.46 a.m., but Jessica's phone was pinging at 3 a.m. in Belton. Kyler was home at this time, so he could not have killed her, is what they were claiming. Further, they tried to introduce evidence that Jessica was a pothead and had been smoking pot at the party, yet no THC was found in her brain matter. Mm -hmm. This meant that she had not died soon after the party, as THC needs time to pass through the system. So... They're pointing out that she must have died much later, so anyone could have killed her, not Kyler or maybe not just Kyler. Right. The defense points out that the wiretap girl, Caitlin, moved in with Kyler after that, saying that clearly she was not scared of him. Also, they suggested that the two were role-playing on the audio. But that's great. I mean, that's a great defense because it's absolutely insane that you would move in with somebody after that tape recording of basically a confession. Exactly. Because what they're saying is they're role-playing in this audio. Kyler went along with her because he thought she would put out if he pretended to have killed someone because he says that she told him it turned her on. They implied that she was, that she tried to use sex to entrap him and he played along with it so he could get some. Ew. Deborah Heflin, 
who lived two blocks from Belton High School in May of 2007, testified for the defense about something not heard by the public before. She said that on May 4th, the day Cara disappeared, she saw a teenage girl walking down the street around 1130 or 12 noon. Then the girl was crying and distraught on the phone with someone. Suddenly a dark sedan with four people inside approached her and Deborah heard a blood curdling scream. She did not know Cara, but recognized her quote three years later when she saw a news report on the case and said, I knew it was her. This was her testimony. On cross, the state cast doubt on her recall. Well, of course, it's three years later. This is one of those. Don't you hate when you see one of these at trial? Some some lady that saw something that, that stood out in her mind and stuck in her mind for so long because it was terrifying. All oh, the sedan pulls up and four people inside approach this girl that she didn't know. And then the girl's gone. Right. She hears a scream doesn't do anything about it on that day and it's not until three years later when she sees a news report on on Kara's case and says oh my goodness that's the girl i saw three years ago it it's just casting doubt here at trial on something that you just you have to question every sentence in her statement this isn't a strong witness to me and I, I don't even know if i would have necessarily called her well if you're the defense you're calling her but yeah you're right it's it's one of those ones that i think just kind of muddles the waters a little bit mm-hmm. you know really gets muddies the waters a little bit here and gets things more confusing than they than they certainly need to be now one thing that we shouldn't call into question is this next expert witness the for the defense it's a forensic anthropologist who took the stand and said, you know, the prosecution is trying to paint the picture that Kyler strangled both of these victims and then dumped their bodies. However, at the crime scene, investigators failed to locate the victim's hyoid bones. So they couldn't really be sure about strangulation. Which obviously that argument goes in Kyler's favor. Yeah. Yeah. And really what you're pointing out here, Captain, and I think that we need to really hit home is the defense is going to not just kind of poke holes in some of the state's case, but a, a large part of their defense is focused around nobody being able to prove that Kyler was where they thought he was during the times that he's committing these crimes. Right. And eventually, this is going to lead to the defendant himself taking the stand. And you pointed out off mic earlier, what an interesting turn of events where earlier the defense is saying, this guy's not even competent to stand trial. And now later, he's taking the stand in his own defense. Well, and again, that's look, you're, you're trying to start off the argument by going, oh, he's incompetent to stand trial, but now... Because he's such a psychopath, a sociopath, he's such a good liar, he comes off as believable, he might be even charming to some people. Again, like you said, he comes into court with disheveled clothes, and now he's all dappered up. I mean, this is just a, it's a bullshit defense, and we're going to put him on the stand knowing that he's just lying through his teeth yeah and it's interesting because he gets up there and he he's calm and he's kind of soft-spoken at times now under direct from his attorney uh 
He said that he did not kill either Kara or Jessica, saying, I don't know exactly what happened to Kara. I didn't do anything to either of them. And he says that the families had been hounding him over the years, but that didn't mean that he did it. He didn't do it. Instead, he said that his dead stepbrother, Jessup, was involved. Yeah, and both murders. That his his half-brother, Jessup, is a serial killer. I wonder, while Kyle, while Kyler was on the stand, if he was wetting himself. <laughs> Mr. Pee-Pee Pants. Yeah, he said that on May 4th, 2007, so we're going back to the, the car case here, and this is, again, Kyler's words on the stand. He says on May 4th, 2007, he was at his grandfather's house for a time and then went to practice with his band. Then, and this is a big departure from what he had been saying since 2007, he said that he and Jessup went to pick Kara up from Belton High School on May 4th. The three of them hung out at his apartment and tried to score some weed. Then Kyler left to go visit his aunt at the nursing home, and Jessup was going to go to a state park with Kara. So here's a little recap from that testimony. On the witness stand, Kyler admitted to lying to police on multiple occasions over the last 14 years about being with Kara on the day of her disappearance. Right. He said he lied because he didn't want to get in trouble because Kara had a protection order against him at the time. Kyler also claimed his half-brother, Jessup Carter, was driving the pickup truck when he picked up Kara at Belton High School. Kyler testified he went back to his home with Kara and Jessup and then tried to get some marijuana from a friend. He then claimed he left Kara and Jessup to go to that friend's house and then on to Kansas City to see his great aunt at a rehab facility. So all this time, he's stuck to one story about not seeing her that day at all, the day in question, for 14 years. And then all of a sudden, while he's on the stand trying to save his own butt, he throws his dead half-brother under the bus, saying the last time I actually saw her, we did hang out that day, Yeah, but I left her with, with Jessup. And when I came back, I don't know what happened. Yeah, and the prosecution's going to say, hey, are you the most unlucky man ever to walk the face of the earth? Two girls that you dated went missing. They're both last seen with you. You have abusive, violent past with both of the girls. And you then confess to hundreds of people <laughs> and tell people that you're responsible for the murders. But now you're saying that your half-brother is a serial killer and decides to just kill girls that you dated or girls that just recently broke up with you. You must be the most unlucky man to ever walk this earth. Yeah, his response was anyone who has a brother who is a serial killer is unlucky. Which is such a bullshit answer because the... No, no, the two girls you dated are the most unlucky people in the world if your half-brother is a is a serial killer that just happens to kill his half-brother's girlfriends. Well, that's his story in Kara's case, but he says that the night that Jessica disappeared in 2016, that Jessica drove him home because he was super drunk. That seems believable, right? Based off of what we heard from the witnesses at the party. And Jessup was in the car as well. How he magically got there, I don't know. 
The next thing he says he remembers is that he woke up at his grandfather's house the next day, again, implying that he's too drunk to have done anything to Jessica. And last time he saw her, she's fine. And in the company of Jessup. Yeah. Doesn't explain the scratches on your face. Jessup scratched your face. Well, he goes on to say that, um, Jessup killed himself because Kyler then pled not guilty in the killing of the two girls. Meaning that Jessup may not have killed himself had Kyler just pled guilty, taken the blame. And then it was only after he decided to plead not guilty that Jessup felt that he had to kill himself. Yeah, this guy's a liar, liar, pee pants on fire. And then all those people that he told, or at least that testified, that he had told them that he had killed one of the girls or both of them or had done something leaving one of them or both of them in the woods, he on the stand just fat, flat out denies having confessed to anyone about what he had done. So all those people are just making it up. All those people are lying. You're the only one telling the truth. And on top of that, you're the only one with peed filled pants. Everybody else, their pants are clean. They're Mr. Clean Pants. That's right. Well, you're not buying it, Captain. I'm not buying it. And the jury didn't buy it either because on April 15th, this after 15 hours of deliberation, they found Kyler guilty of voluntary manslaughter in Kara's case and second degree murder in Jessica's case, which showed that he killed her with intent. The family was permitted to give victim impact statements prior to the jury's sentencing recommendation. Kara's mom talked about how Kara had planned to go into the medical field and she was a loving, trusting girl whose disappearance ripped the family apart and started a 10-year nightmare. She told the jury that she did not feel the manslaughter conviction was enough. I agree. Carr's stepfather told the jury that Rhonda had been paying Carr's phone bill for the entire 14 years since she vanished in case they needed the number for her case. Right. They had called the phone often just to hear Carr on the voicemail. Then we have Jessica's mother, Jamie Runyons said, it's been the longest four years and seven months of my entire life. Her daughter who was kind to everyone and loved music and dancing was taken from them far too soon. She said that one of her other daughters tried to take her own life since Jessica's murder. Her ex, John, Jessica's father said he would never get to walk Jessica down the aisle and her younger sister's, would never get to see her grow as a role model for them. The jury recommended life for the murder and 15 years for the manslaughter. After the verdict, Rhonda and Jamie addressed the media saying, we are thankful to be where we are today because there were days when we didn't know if our girls would ever be found. Right. And we're just so thankful that they were found. And we have them back. But this is also because they didn't give up. The mothers didn't give up. The mothers leading the charge, having the community not give up. I think that's why you keep that people talking about it. That's why he confessed to so many people. Because people were continuing to talk about it. Because he was a suspect for nine years. And the community wouldn't let that go. Which kept that on his that kept that on Kyler's mind. And 
on his conscience. And then he had to tell people about it to try to feel better about the bad stuff he did. That's really interesting, Captain, and I agree with that 100%. Uh, The judge sentenced Kyler to the max, which was 15 years for the voluntary manslaughter and life imprisonment for the second degree murder in Missouri. Look, this is this is an ongoing issue and we're not going to solve it in the garage here today. But oftentimes life does not mean life in Missouri. A life sentence is capped at 30 years. Prisoners who serve about 85 percent of the sentence become eligible for parole. The sentences will run consecutively, but Kyler will also receive credit for some time served, which was about four years at that point. So he could be out in about 34 years. Kyler rejected the opportunity to say anything in court before the sentencing, which is ironic. As you pointed out, how he confessed to so many people along the way, this is the one time that he chose to keep his mouth shut. And again, you have to wonder if he had simply kept his mouth shut to begin with between 2007 and 2016, we didn't have much physical evidence in this case, right? There's a possibility he would not be in prison today. So we should be thankful that he couldn't stop talking in June of this year. Kyler filed his appeal for his conviction as is his right He will see that process through as he rots in a corrections facility in Missouri. Well, hopefully he serves the full amount of the term and hopefully he gets a little prison justice and hopefully there's some people that find him to be annoying and don't like his stupid face and and maybe get so scared that he wets himself and so people take out some anger on this douche. But also... Maybe when he's up for parole, they won't parole him. Keith Todd. Remember, he's the mushroom hunter who found the girls. Yeah. He later told KSHB.com that he has a daughter who is Jessica's age. He said, I was honored that I was able to help bring this to a closure. I mean, for a family to go 10 years without knowing where your child is, is just heart wrenching. And with Jessica, seven months is like an eternity. I am just grateful that the good Lord and these girls led me to the remains that day. Now, before we wrap up here this week, Captain, I want to use a quote from an article from earlier this year. Robert D. Keppel, Ph.D., is a man that we have spoke of several times on this show throughout the years. Robert Keppel was instrumental in the investigations and capture of Ted Bundy, the Green River Killer Gary Ridgway, and the Atlanta child killer Wayne Williams. He is also the author of many brilliant true crime books. Sadly, Dr. Keppel passed away a few months ago, but there was something he said in an interview years ago that was in this recent article as well that very much pertains to this week's case. And it said, Robert Keppel says there are more serial killers than people think. Everyone knows the famous ones that the newspaper headlines cover. Nobody knows all the rest. All the rest are more dangerous. There are more of those out there that kill two, three, or four people. Thank you for all of your incredible work, Mr. Keppel. Rest in peace.
Thank you so much for joining us here in the garage. If you have thoughts and opinions on this case, please go to truecrimegarage.com and comment on the blog section. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for the listeners this week? Why, yes, we do here, Captain. Uh, This week we're recommending Deviant, the shocking true story of the original Psycho by Harold Schechter. Driven to commit gruesome and bizarre acts beyond all imagination, Ed Gein remains one of the most deranged minds in the annals of American homicide. This is his story, recounted in fascinating and chilling detail by Harold Schechter, one of the most acclaimed true crime storytellers of our time. And, hey, friend of the show. We had him on as a guest on our other great show, Off the Record. So check out Deviant, the shocking true story of the original Psycho by Harold Schechter. You can find that great title and many others on our recommended page at truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't let it. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.